Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and I'm the host of the Equip Project podcast. The Equip Project is designed to help young people engage with the Christian faith in a thoughtful and reasonable way. Our goal is to help provide clarity and understanding as we seek to tackle many of the cultural and intellectual challenges to Christianity. I'm the youth and young people's worker here at Crescent Church in Belfast, and we're in the middle of a three-part series on the Bible. In our first episode, we discussed the idea of the Bible being inspired by God. But in episode two, we're going to think about how Christians can justifiably claim that the 66 books in their Bible are inspired, but only those 66. I'm happy to welcome Jim Crooks back with us. Hi, everyone. It's good to be back with you. Uh, If my voice sounds a little muffled, you can blame the magnificent cakes uh, Ollie has placed on the table. I'm I'm enjoying them myself as well. French fancies, were you happy with that choice, Jim? Uh, Yes, excellent choice. One never knows when the years of famine may strike. (laughs) I can do better next week. I might even try making one myself. How do you feel about that? Uh, 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 Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It does, yes. I was going to quote that verse in Mark about drinking down poison. (laughs) Okay, let's dive straight into this question. Imagine that laid out on a table in this room, we have the original manuscripts of all 66 books of the Bible. So there's the original manuscript of Acts in Luke's handwriting, and perhaps uh, in Jeremiah's handwriting, we have the book of Lamentations. How do we arrive at the conclusion that these 66 books are inspired, but say 2nd Maccabees isn't, or the Gospel of Thomas isn't? Why specifically these 66? Okay, the main criticism here is that the Bible is an artificial invention. Um, So the canon, as we call it, the set of 66 books, critics of Christianity would say that is a thing constructed by the Christian church in the 4th and 5th centuries. Uh, So let me just lay out the usual attack made on the orthodox view of the Christian scriptures. And it goes something like this. So we're told that Jesus never even made a passing reference to creating a thing called the New Testament. The early church lived in this fluid, ever-changing environment where so-called scriptures and inspirational writings floated around, but were told that it never entered into their heads to produce a single official list of writings that would become the supreme authority of the church. So how did the Bible come into being? Well, according to this theory, centuries later, when the Christian church had grown into a powerful political institution, a group of men got together and invented this thing called the canon of scripture. So they held lots of committee meetings and councils, and, and then they announced their verdict. Okay, So, in other words, they constructed the canon themselves. And according to the critics, they did this because they were afraid of losing power and control. So the Bible is interpreted to be an invention, a device that was used to enforce power and control within the church that built it. So let's call that critics' model of the New Testament the imposed model. Okay, So critics say that the church imposed the idea of a canon on ordinary Christians. Um, What we call the Bible is just the product of a set of edicts from 4th century control freaks. So that's what we mean by the imposed model. I can feel uh, however coming up there, Jim. Am I right? <laughs> yes. So what is the orthodox view? Sort of what can, do conservative Christians think? We think that the imposed model is the sort of theory that atheist scholars would be bound to come up with. If you approach this subject uh, believing that religion is nothing but politics and power, then it's not in the least surprising you produce a theory of the Bible that is all about politics and power. So what do we say? Well, conservative Christians say that the canon of Scripture is a theological creation. So when did it come into existence? Well, say in about AD 97, when the Apostle John put his quill down after writing the last sentence of the book of the Revelation. As soon as the ink dried on the papyrus, the canon of Scripture came into being. Okay, so that's how we see it, as a theological creation. 
Okay, so I understand that, but what about the long historical process over the next three centuries? What what was all that about? And we often hear about these councils uh, in the 4th century and the 16th century. What's the deal with those? Sure. So that was the period when the Spirit of God led the people of God to recognize the Word of God. So let's call this model the recognition model. Okay. So as it explains things, The church didn't impose the canon of Christianity. The church, over time, simply recognized the canon as a divinely created thing. Okay, so what I hear you saying is that we have two models. We have this imposed model and we have this recognition model. And there seems to be some issue with uh, the imposition model, the imposed model that you're talking about. Uh, And and what, what is that issue? What's wrong with it? Well, the supporters of that model are saying that Jesus and his disciples never had any idea of producing this thing we call the New Testament that's sitting in front of me. So to make their case, they advance two arguments. First, they say the early church would have had no motivation to produce the New Testament. And then secondly, they say the early church wouldn't have been able to deliver a thing like the New Testament because Christianity in its early days was an oral tradition. Okay, so I want to take those in, in turn. Is it true that the early church wouldn't have had the motivation to produce the New Testament? I think not. Remember, the apostles and all the other disciples were steeped in the Old Testament. And here's the thing with the Old Testament. It's a bit like Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. It is a story without an ending. We leave it still waiting. Think of Simeon's words. He longed for the consolation of Israel. So the grand finale, the coming of the Messiah, that God would inspire people to finish the story was expected. So on a practical level, the apostles knew they had to uh, teach a community that was spreading all over the ancient world. Paul says on one occasion, one occasion how he longed to be physically present with a group of Christians, but his written words would have to do. The other thing is, all the other apostles were conscious of their mortality. They knew they were going to die. Peter says it explicitly. First chapter of his second epistle, he says, I think it right, as long as I live in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And he says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And what about the second criticism, Uh, the one about Christians only being interested in an oral tradition because they were mostly illiterate? What do you make of of that criticism? Well, it is true that people at that time had this amazing ability to memorize the spoken word. Uh, The disciples of any rabbi were expected to memorize huge amounts of their rabbi's teaching. But just because people have that skill says nothing about the written skills of the early church. So here's the thing. The idea that the first Christians had no interest in writing couldn't be further from the truth. It was Christians who practically invented the book, or the codex, as as scholars call it. They were the first people to treat books as precious artifacts. Of course, many Christians, in fact, like most people in the ancient world, were illiterate. But the writers of the New Testament wrote what is now regarded as straightforward professional prose. So the headline response to the uh, oral argument is this. No Greco-Roman religious group produced, used, or valued texts on a scale comparable to Christianity. So it seems to me at any rate that the analysis used to support the imposed model, the model which sees a canon as an invention of the 4th century, is really flawed. Let's turn then to that second, second model you mentioned, the one you called the recognized or, or the recognition model. How does that model work? Well, I mean simply that the church didn't construct the canon. The church is not the mother of the book. Christians simply recognized the canon over time. Now, the critics attack that idea using, again, two main arguments. First, they say the canon is basically the invention of one man, a man called Arrhenius. And secondly, they say the books of the New Testament were only regarded as scripture very late on in the day. So tell us a little bit about this chap, Irenaeus. What, what can you tell us about him? 
Well, he lived around the end of the second century, incidentally, which is quite early. Now, the interesting thing about Irenaeus is, in his writings, he quotes over a thousand times from the New Testament documents. He quotes every one of Paul's writings, apart from Philemon. And when he writes about these books, you don't get the sense that he's carving out some grand new scheme or introducing anything innovative at all, in fact. He just seems to assume that his readers know the books, and he assumes that they're scripture. Uh, He's well known uh, for being a staunch defender of the four uh, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Okay, so is it possible to argue that Irenaeus actually constructed the canon himself? Is is that something that that, that people say? It it is said, but I don't think it holds water. Uh, For this simple reason, there are other canonical lists around about this time, slightly earlier in fact, around about 180 AD, and there are only minor differences between them. So I think it's simply untrue to assert that the New Testament canon came out of Arrhenius's head. Okay, that's, uh, that, that sounds robust to me. Um, but what about the other criticism? Uh, and that is that the New Testament books were only treated as scripture very late in the day. What do you make of that criticism? Okay, well, let's just get our bearings here. The last New Testament document, the book of the Revelation, was written shortly after AD 90. And it is amazing how quickly after that date, the Christian church starts to use the New Testament documents as scripture. So you may have heard of Justin Martyr. Uh, He was writing around about 150 AD, and he, he gives this incredible insight into the early church. This is what he says. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Now, do you get the significance of that quote? The memoirs of the apostles, the New Testament books, are placed in the same category as the Old Testament scriptures. So that's 150 AD. Now we can actually go back even further. A fourfold gospel is in place early in the second century. There's a Christian called uh, Papias who was writing letters around about AD 125, and it's almost certain that he knew Luke personally. And Papias was a friend of Polycarp, who knew the Apostle John personally. He had heard heard the Apostle John preach. In fact, in his letters, he goes out of his way to say that he came across this information personally from the elder. Well, that's the term that was used uh, to given to John in his old age. Now, listen to this quote from one of Papias' letters. Now, remember, this quote was written just 30 years after the last book of the New Testament. The elder used to say, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that Peter remembered. For he was intent on just one purpose, to leave nothing out that he heard or to include any falsehood among them. Matthew collected the oracles in the Hebrew style. I think that's an amazing quote. So by AD 125, we have an assurance about the truthfulness of the written records from a man who had extraordinarily close links with all four gospel writers. I don't see anything about an oral tradition here, do you? Here's a man going out of his way to confirm the accuracy of the written records of the New Testament. And here's the thing, those written records were regarded as scripture. Around about AD 130, there was a popular little, little text circulated around the early church. It was called the Epistle of Barnabas. And the Epistle of Barnabas quotes a verse from Matthew's Gospel. It's actually verse 22, verse 14. Now that in itself causes critical scholars to gnash their teeth. But worse, the quote is cited as scripture. The Barnabas letter uses the stock phrase, it stands written, which our Lord used to refer to the Old Testament writings. So we have evidence then from 130 AD that the early church put the New Testament writings on the same footing as the Old Testament canon. That's pretty remarkable. It is, but we can actually do even better. In 110 AD, there's a famous Christian called Ignatius, 
and he had an extensive collection of Paul's epistles. And he regarded Paul's writings and the writings of the other apostles as a supremely high source of authority. He once famously said to his congregation just before he died, I do not command you as Peter and Paul do. They are apostles. I am condemned. In that same year, 110 AD, uh, the guy I've mentioned before, the famous Polycarp, quotes Paul's letter to the Ephesians with the words, as the scriptures say. So I think the recognition model can be defended fairly easily. The apostles knew they were writing inspired scripture. The church fathers, with evidence from as early as 110 AD, accepted and endorsed that apostolic authority. And a body of documents, the vast bulk of the New Testament, was circulated among the churches for centuries before any big councils were held in the 4th century. What would you say to people who point out that books like Hebrews weren't included for a long time in the New Testament canon? Well, it is true that in the early days, the canon was a bit rough around the edges. So there were questions, as you say, about Hebrews and also James. There were also debates over 2nd and 3rd John, Jude and Revelation. But if the recognition model is right, then God the Holy Spirit was working, bringing the canon he had created into sharper focus. So eventually the debates over the few controversies ended and the New Testament canon as we have it today uh, was settled. So if you go to AD 367, Athanasius wrote a circular letter listing out the 27 books of the New Testament that we have today. And he used the word canon for the first time in, in that context. But the truth is the New Testament canon had been in existence for 270 years before that date. The vast majority of the canon was recognized very early on, hundreds of years earlier. And then this gradual sharpening of focus on the more controversial books came along later. So, in summary, I think the recognition model for the biblical canon stands up well. One of the most common questions in this area is about the disputed books of the Old Testament, the so-called Apocrypha. Could you just give us a little bit of, of understanding about what's going on w with books in the Apocrypha? The origin of the, those books can mainly be explained by talking about a thing called the Greek Old Testament. And that probably sounds weird to you. Surely the Old Testament is Hebrew and the New Testament is Greek. Well, remember that because of the antics of Alexander the Great, Judea was part of the Greek Empire right up to 130 BC. So Greek-speaking Jewish communities sprang up all around, especially in places like Alexandria. And of course, they needed their scriptures in Greek. And so this thing called the Septuagint was born. And it is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And during its development, some extra books were introduced. Books like Judith and Tobit and Ecclesiasticus and Baruch and Enoch. The Maccabees books were included as an appendix, and some extra material was inserted into the book of Daniel. Anyway, if we fast forward to the New Testament, Jerome comes along and he translates the Old Testament into Latin. And of course, he went back to the original canon. So he omitted the books that the Septuagint translators had added in. And that should have ended the matter. But then an even more famous figure in church history, the man we call Augustine of Hippo, stopped making the careful distinctions which the earlier church fathers had made between these books. Augustine had really very little understanding of Hebrew. And unfortunately, in the year 393, uh, a church council in Augustine's uh, diocese produced an Old Testament canon which contained the extra material. Today, we call it the Apocrypha, and you'll find that extra material in Bibles used in Roman Catholic churches. But if you fast forward then to the 16th century, to the Reformation, we see the Reformers revert to the original Old Testament canon, which Jerome had translated. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but there's also a lot of excitement over New Testament books that are seen by critical scholars as candidates for the New Testament canon. These are the so-called other Gospels. What, what do you make of, of books like this? Yes, I, I blame Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code 
for all the sound and fury over this issue. Now, it is important that we have a, a rational and thought-out response to the claim that the Church deliberately suppressed these books because it was embarrassed by their contents. So let's start with the, the most famous of them, which is the, the Gospel of Thomas. Now, it's been claimed that the Gospel of Thomas is earlier than any of the four Gospels. Some scholars suggest that the Thomas could have been written shortly after AD 50, which would have been incredibly early. And it caused a big stir in the press. It actually made headlines in some of the British newspapers. And conspiracy theories abounded uh, that the Church had suppressed this fifth Gospel. Now, the consensus today is that the Gospel of Thomas should be dated sometime after AD 170, which is a century after the four Gospels. Most obviously, it quotes from the other gospel records, especially from Matthew's gospel. So the wheels have come off this particular conspiracy theory. I'm sorry if this stuff bores you, but it shows the important work that Christian scholars do behind the scenes. There's a scholar called Nicholas Perrin, and he did a really smart thing. You see, it had been assumed that the version that we have of the Gospel of Thomas today, it's in, in Coptic, it had been assumed that it was a translation from a Greek original. But Perrin had noticed quite a few hints of a Syrian influence in the Gospel of Thomas. So he back-translated the text into Greek into Syriac, and he found over 500 catchwords in the Syriac translation. Now, that information may have cost you to lose the will to live, but it actually provides really impressive evidence that the Gospel of Thomas is late, because it must have been based on a Syriac harmonized Gospel, which wasn't available until about AD 160. Now, maybe the best advice I can give people interested in this controversy is to read these false Gospels. They are full of truly weird and horrible stuff. I will now probably cause an online riot, but I'm going to quote one line from the Gospel of Thomas. Peter said, Make Mary leave us, for women are not worthy to receive eternal life. That is outrageous. The Gospel of Thomas is drivel, the product of an unpleasant mind, sometime around AD 180. That is uh, that is a truly shocking quote. The Dan Brown books also generated interest in other Gospels, like the Gospel of Peter. What are your thoughts on, on that particular Gospel? Yes, there was great excitement a few years ago, wasn't there, over this so-called Gospel of Peter. Uh, the headline is, it doesn't exist, by the way. Because they find this fragment, it was believed to be from this so-called Gospel of Peter, and it, <laughs> it makes for an astonishing read. Uh, I mean, its account of the resurrection is the stuff of fantasy. Two angels emerge from the tomb supporting Jesus. Their heads reach up to heaven. And then these three figures are followed by a cross, which not only walks, but talks. Yes, a talking, walking cross. Now, if you read the fragment, it becomes clear again that the author is rather unpleasant. He's anti-Jewish. He exults in the plight of the Jews after the fall of Jerusalem. Remember, that didn't happen until AD 70. But the really embarrassing thing is that scholars have now admitted that the fragment has no actual links with this legendary Gospel of Peter. No one really knows what it is. So the Gospel of Peter remains the stuff of legend. The fragment itself was dated to about 250 AD, and even that date looks early. Then there's the Gospel of Mary, which has been cited by people like Dan Brown as evidence that our Lord and Mary Magdalene were lovers. Now, the Gospel of Mary is a piece of fiction, but nowhere does it make that claim. The Gospel of Mary is a political tract that rails against the restrictions on women laid down by the apostles. So Dan Brown isn't just using rubbish source material, he is misusing rubbish source material. So when you take a step back from all that detail, and I'm sorry if I bored you there, but an entirely reasonable case can be made for the assertion that God the Holy Spirit created the canon of 66 books as we have them today, and that the Christian Church gradually recognized his work. So a young Christian can rest on a rational foundation when asked if she accepts the 66 books as inspired. Thank you very much, Jim. That's uh, been a really helpful conversation and certainly given me a lot of food for thought. 
Thank you for listening to episode two of the Equip Project podcast. It's been great having you with us. We hope you can join us again for episode three as we consider the manuscript evidence for the Bible and ask how we can be sure the Bibles we have in our hands today match up with what was originally written. If you would like to suggest a topic or question we can talk about together, please email theequipproject at gmail.com or reach out to us via Instagram.